0: This is Podcast Radio, I'm Mark Pendergast and when you talk about iconic TV shows I think one from the early 2000s that we all remember is Trigger Happy TV whether it was dressing as a giant squirrel and annoying people or answering an extraordinarily large mobile phone on trains it was TV that everybody talked about and the man behind it, Dom Jolly, is here So happy Christmas jumper day, Dom, how are you?
1: I am pretty good, pretty festive actually for an ex-Goth Uh, I can be a bit grinchy at Christmas, but firstly, as a spokesperson for Save the Children's Christmas Jumper Day, uh, I have got used to being very good on this day. Uh, I think I can last a day and I like wearing a jumper for a day. But obviously, I think people that would wear a Christmas jumper for, you know, a a period of weeks, there's a sort of slight instability there. Uh, So no, I'm good is a long, long answer to your question.
0: Good stuff. I just wonder about people who actually wear these Christmas jumpers in July. I think that's more of a washing issue
1: than anything else. I think that's the first sign of madness, to be honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you're probably right. Uh, Your work with Save the Children uh, has been uh, varied across the years. You've uh, worked with uh, refugees in Ukraine and uh, Syrian refugees as well and I, I don't know how many people know this about you and whether it's true because i got it from wikipedia but you speak arabic don't you because you were brought up in lebanon so yeah in terms of when you go and visit these people you've got you've got a real connection with them because you can speak to like Syrian refugees in their own language and get their their real stories it's not it's not sterilized like we get which is you know secondhand through a, through a translator or through subtitles on a screen
1: uh, I can. I mean, Lebanese and Syrian Arabic is, is slightly different. And uh, my Arabic is very rusty because I haven't spoken it for a bit. But yeah, definitely, I can make a connection with them and I can communicate with them. I, I went to a refugee camp in Jordan called Zaatari, uh, where I met a lot of kids uh, who had just come out of Syria after a very kind of harrowing time. And I, I think I can relate to them more just because I grew up in Lebanon. And I grew up in a place till I was seven years old that was, you know, this beautiful amazing country and then suddenly it was ripped apart by a civil war uh and obviously i was a much more fortunate than a lot of people in that i was british and i was able to go to england and stuff but um it, it does make you realize just how traumatizing it is for children to have that kind of normalcy ripped apart so that, that's one of the main reasons that you know i'm involved to save the children
0: it seems to be doesn't it i've i've been over to lebanon a couple of times and i was there pre-Syrian civil war and then post Syrian civil war and prior to that Lebanon was was full of refugees but the, the difference I noticed once I, I went back the second time there was there was people living in makeshift tents like on on roadsides on sort of almost like hills leading to uh, you know rubbish dumps and stuff like that just anywhere where there was a tiny bit of space within Beirut they would they seem to be decamping to and it's it's a situation you can't quite get your head around unless you actually see it.
1: Yeah, it's very weird for Lebanon as well, because Lebanon's a very small country uh, geographically. And when I was a kid and when the war was going on, we used to go to Syria to get away from the war. You know, it was very, relatively stable. And and Syria's a massive country. And now it's flipped round. And, you know, there's over 2 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. In Lebanon's population, is only about 5 million. But on top of that, there was the massive explosion that everyone saw in the silo in the port. And that made a vast amount of people homeless. And really almost, you know, it was the sort of, explosion that broke the camels back in lebanon so lebanon's not in a good way at the moment economically or anything weirdly i'm going there on sunday uh because my sister runs our the family company that <laughs> i was de- it was decided that i would not be running so i was i went off and became a squirrel but um uh we're going back there because it got it it's it, it's literally 600 meters from that silo and got completely destroyed and so it's been rebuilt and so i'm going back for the opening party on monday night but yeah it's 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 an it's an incredible place
0: Have you been across and spoken to people who were refugees from Ukraine as well? Is it a similar situation there? What's the feel?
1: Yeah, so I was in Ukraine in 2018 when, you know, people didn't really know that there was already a war going on and been going on for four years. And I flew from London to, uh, I think it was Donetsk, and we landed in, in eastern Ukraine. And I was just amazed. Like, you're in the middle of what was supposedly a modern European country, and there was this war going on that no one knew about. It was like a... 100-mile-long First World War trench warfare with kids crossing the front line and, you know, having to avoid mines and having air raid shelters and bomb shelters in their school. And I think what that really brought home to me is I think people often think that this sort of situation, these sort of wars or conflicts only happen in far distant places that have very little to do with us. And actually... uh, Ukraine, it could have been anywhere, like it could have been Europe. And and from my knowledge, I know it could happen in any country. So it's something that uh, we should all be aware of. And and the one thing that links all these different things is that kids have absolutely nothing to do with this. And so the kids are the first things that need to be looked after.
0: Because we get the tail end of it, don't you? Here in Britain, we've got the sort of, you know, the the fuel prices have gone up and there is discomfort, but it's, it's, you know, the central hub of why these things are happening. It's, it's it's desperate and it's difficult to kind of comprehend for, for people who are, you know, we, we're in this nice Western society where everything's kind of easy and there's there's always stuff on the supermarket shelves and things like that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing. I mean, I think one of the great things about living in Britain is that we've been lucky enough since pretty much the Second World War to have had an incredibly stable, you know, prospering society. And if you grow up in that, I think it's very difficult to get your head round people's daily existence one of the weird things when you in whatever area of conflict or wherever you live is how you try and the sort of natural human reaction is to make that normal because it's the only way of coping so you know the Lebanese have long been like used to all sorts of weird hardships and they just you try and retain some sort of normal life through that but it's not normal and if you're a kid and you grow up in that that you, you don't even have a sense of that's not actually normal. That is your life, and that's one of the things. Say, that children really try and do is try and allow them to be kids, not grow up too quickly, not have a life that's just constant stress and stuff. That's why I really, are, you know, just in awe of the stuff they do.
0: What do you think it's like here in terms of our sympathy levels? For did you think it's been watered down? It's probably not the right phrase, but do you think you know these people have almost been demonised sometimes rather than being empathised with?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a really interesting question uh as a spokesperson for save the children i can't get too political but i think there's definitely uh i think i think one of the important things about the ukraine i mean there was a massive upsurge in welcoming ukrainian refugees and 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 fundraising for ukraine and i think part of that had to be is that people look and think oh my god you know they look like us it could happen here which in a sense is a very sad statement about what people think about others from other skin colors and other countries but I suppose also it's a warning that, you know, I think people suddenly realize, oh, God, it doesn't just happen in weird parts of the world. It can happen anywhere. So I think that's probably quite a good lesson in a sense.
0: You're a well-traveled fella. You've just recently done a show, your Holiday Snaps tour. Tell us a a little bit about that. Was North Korea involved and, and various other places?
1: yeah so I've been a I've written travel I've written four travel books in the last 15 well 10 years and I tend to I've been to 106 countries that's my real obsession is travel and I tend to like probably because of where I grew up I I kind of like traveling off the grid so uh the tour was about stuff like I did a coach tour of North Korea I went to Chernobyl for the weekend I went skiing in Iran I went monster hunting in the Congo uh I've just come back from my new book on conspiracies. I've just come back from Newfoundland where I went to the island of Fogo, which is apparently one of the four corners of the flat earth. And I didn't fall off. That was good. I've just been to Finland because there's an incredible conspiracy theory that Finland doesn't exist. I think I've proved it does exist, although it's quite hard to. So, yeah, I love travel. It's what I it's it's the thing that uh, affects me the most and, and gets me the most excited. So often I do come into contact with the sort of places that end up having save the children, save them, you know.
0: It does broaden the mind, doesn't it? I mean, I'm I'm not as well travelled as you, but I've been to probably about 50 countries, and you you start to really understand and empathise with people, and you can see that there's more of we've got more in common than we have that separates us.
1: I totally agree. I think we live in a in a in a in in a world now where we're sort of trying. It's very polarised, and I think a lot of that has got to do with social media. There's either you know extremes of one side, extremes of the other. We're sort of taught to fear the other. And it's ignorance, really. It's ignorance of how other people live. And we sort of fear stuff we don't understand. And one of the great things about travel, as you said, is you get somewhere and you realize that, you know, other people, whatever countries are, are there, there, are just as many idiots as there are here. Just as many people that have stupid sense of humor. There are nasty people. There are good people. You know, we're all the same, essentially. Uh, it's just uh, it totally depends on the on the luck and fortune of, of, of where you're born.
0: It's exactly right, and you—you you were born obviously in Lebanon. You've had a very sort of I don't know, what windy road of a career, if you like. You know, your, your TV show back in the day, Trigger Happy TV, and the various sort of things you've done were absolutely huge. And now you've sort of switched to sort of travel writing and things like that. Is this—is this like a Michael Palin type journey? Is it?
1: Well, I need to. I need to. If you know, if I really, really want to succeed in travel writing, there are a couple of people I need to bump off. You know, I need to get rid of Bill Bryson and Michael Palin, but I like Michael Palin too much. I couldn't... I don't know. I mean, comedy was never the plan for me. Like, growing up in Beirut, I, I the people I kind of admired uh, were foreign correspondents, travel writers. I was obsessed with travel writers, spies, diplomats. I've been a diplomat, weirdly. I did that very early in my career. Uh, I might have been a spy, but I'd have to kill you if I told you. And I've been a foreign correspondent. But travel writer is what I always wanted to be. And, and it's sort of odd mm-hmm. that... This, you know, I mean Trigger Happy did amazingly and I'm incredibly proud of it. Uh, but it really was a kind of uh, an accident. Like I didn't. Set How, out How could you be accidentally be that good? Uh well I think possibly because I really put everything I had into it. I think a lot of TV, uh however good you want to do something, you have just natural time constraints. So, you know, you're told you've got two months, go make it because there's there's a price to it. Uh when we made Trigger Happy, Sam and I we basically, we were, we were like the first YouTubers. Trigger Happy happened just before YouTube and stuff like that. But the cameras suddenly existed where you could go and make it yourself. And so it wasn't like we went off and we had two months to do it and then we took the best of what we did. We literally just went and just filmed and filmed and filmed. And we made so much rubbish, Like really, but it was a learning process. And so by the time we got to the edit... Like, we were only using the things we really loved, and we had about a year's worth of stuff. And then I loved editing. Like, editing's the main passion for me. I loved that. And also, I've got a big background in music. As a goth, I like sad music. I was in a band. And I think the kind of combination of putting really beautifully sad songs with some quite silly stuff maybe worked. I don't know. And The secret is you just make what you want to watch. And the the, the sort of stuff I wanted to watch was not on telly. So I never set out to change hidden camera or anything. I just wanted to make a show that was art, really, which sounds really poncy, but it was.
0: It was was such a... I was watching it, and obviously I work in the media myself, and you realise what goes into an edit, but that must have been monumental in terms of how how many hours of stuff did you have to (laughs) knock out a half-hour
1: show? I see, that's a really interesting point, actually, because we got so bad because we filmed so much stuff. Because one of the problems of filming hidden camera is obviously you could film the best thing ever and then you don't get consent from someone, you can't use it. And uh, we worked it out. Well, I think we shot more footage than Apocalypse Now in the first series. Wow. We worked it out to something like, I think per minute used, it was probably about 50 hours filmed. Which is pretty crazy, but we were enjoying like doing it. By the second series, I got a lot better. We got better at working out how to get consents. We planned our filming. Like the first trigger was really just driving around London, thinking, "Oh, let's do that." Like we had no planning at all. It was all a bit punk, really. Uh, but that's what I loved about it.
0: It's almost like being well, you hear about the David Attenborough films that he narrates and things, where he yeah. someone <laughs> spent three three weeks. In a hole in the sitting ground. in a cave Wait. waiting
1: for a moth to yeah. land on the nose of a gnat yeah I know <laughs> I think they I think they have slightly better budgets than we did we had no budget I mean we really were just like three men in a van driving around England looking to annoy people it was fantastic
0: <laughs> it was it was some show wasn't it It just was so big at the time and I don't Do you know think... what it's
1: so weird when it happened I wasn't because that was my first TV show I, I wasn't aware of how big it was because you're kind of caught in the moment and it's only now I realized how big a thing it was because people go, oh, you don't see, you know, it was really big. Like, it didn't feel like big at the time because we just, we gave it in. I just remember being so excited that we were making something that was going to go on telly and then we handed it in to Channel 4 and they announced it was going out on Friday night between Friends and Frasier. I was like, what? And then the moment I realized how huge it was, it was crazy. It was like a week after the first Trig Happy show went out, 14th of February, 2000. I was sitting on a train and that ringtone went off, and no one knew I was on the train. Three people in the carriage stood up, and went "Hello, I'm on a train." I was like, "Oh my god, I've created a monster." It was very weird.
0: It's one of those things, wasn't it? At the time, because there was there was less media than there is now. You you yeah. could you could catch the, the zeitgeist, and you could get you could become the catchphrase. You, everybody will be talking about it. Literally everybody.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that's different now. Uh, there are so many different channels, and so stuff gets diluted. But I think the other thing the way people consume media now in the sense that you either uh you know you just go on a binge watch or whatever the one thing you don't really get much anymore is that water cooler moment like trigger very much like loads of people i've spoken to it went out on a friday had a repeat on a saturday and people would get to school on monday morning or be talking about it or uni and that those things are very unifying moments uh but they're you know but it still happens i mean in between us existed within that you know within the newer rules and i think i had those moments so uh you know there's no reason not to do it but yeah it was amazing amazing time i didn't enjoy it i'll be honest i loved making the show but i didn't enjoy that level of fame so i'm very comfortable where i am now
0: it must have been a lot of pressure as well it must be like a difficult second album when you've got to make a second series especially if you spent so long making your first series
1: well actually the second series was better than the first series uh because i we just knew what we were doing and that was great it was really good what was difficult was to move on. What I find really weird about Hidden Camera is is that uh, uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, often I'll get people who say, oh, it's all you do is Hidden cameras. Is that your only joke? And I'm like, you wouldn't say that if you wrote a sitcom. You'd write another sitcom. I think Hidden Camera's never seen, uh, if you're in comedy, Hidden Camera is seen as the lowest art form. You know, if you're smart, you write screenplays, you write sitcoms. And I always used to look at rubbish stuff I grew up with, like Beatles about and... Uh, just this kind of NAF stuff and just think this doesn't have to be stupid. Like in America, what I do is 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 called improv. I mean, here, improv just sounds like a nightmare. It's like you're stuck in a lift with John Sessions. But in America, improv tends to move on to do things like Kirby Enthusiasm and Spinal Tap. Here, there was nowhere really to go with it. So that's why I stopped because uh, I'd done what I wanted to do with that. Uh, and I have a very weird set of skills, which involves being able to dress as a squirrel and ad lib amusingly. Uh, but I, I much prefer to travel write, but unfortunately, it doesn't pay as well.
0: What are your plans for the future? If, you, if I give you a blank page, or say, let's say I'm head of channel four or similar channel, uh, what, would yeah. you, what would you? What would you? Would you most like to produce now?
1: Well, it's weird because I, I really genuinely travel writing is what I want to do, and I, I thought I needed to pay my dues a bit because I've jumped careers, uh, and I think I'm getting there. I think I've, the books have done well, and I think my next book's going to be really good. I've also conquered live touring. I never was a stand-up, never did live stuff, and I, I'm really. I've got that now, so I can't wait for a new tour. But telewise, I haven't done anything for ages. I kind of I'd moved on. And then suddenly there's been this weird wave. In fact, in the last couple of months, and I've now got three TV projects underway, which are all quite interesting and sort of blending, which is what I always wanted to do, my two areas. I wanted to do something where I could blend my love of travel to weird places and being funny and ad lib. And and actually I've found a couple of vehicles that might just work, which unfortunately I can't tell you about, but uh, they're looking pretty promising. So, yeah, lots of stuff on the horizon. So, not dead yet.
0: So, you can't tell us about them. Can you tell us when they will be about or when you think they will be about? Well, I'm
1: literally, they're all at the start. I mean, there is quite a lot of movement towards a Trigger Happy movie, and the Trigger Happy movie is going to be a very different thing. The the concept of that is if you liked watching Trigger Happy, come and be in the film, because I want a sort of cinematic scale, I want like crowd scenes with 2,000 people and I don't want to pay extras. So really I want fans to come and be in the movie. And so we've got that all written and Sam, who I made Trigger Happy with, went off to LA and he's come back. So we're ready. We're really cashing in on the success of Trigger Happy 22 years later. But um, uh, no, uh, that's quite exciting. But then I've also got a very weird travel programme involving my son and drugs, which I can't say any more about, called Dom Jolly's Bad Bad Trips, which uh, is, I think, quite interesting. And then uh, I've got a very weird hybrid true crime series in the pipeline where it's sort of hidden camera takes on scammers and it's quite exciting so yeah they're all quite odd
0: well we look forward to seeing those and i can't wait to see trigger happy with sort of ben Hur style production values on it Do you
1: know what that's so funny you said that that's exactly how i pitched it that was my elevator pitch it was like <laughs> it was imagine trigger happy ben her style size that's exactly what it was
0: Fantastic. Well, we look forward to Ben, her trigger happy (laughs) version. I'm sure it'll be brilliant.
1: Thanks. Can I just urge people back to what we originally talked about, which is Christmas Jumper Day today for Save the Children. And if they are interested in donating, uh, I'd really appreciate it. If they went to christmasjumperday.org, you can get all your info there.
0: That's Dom Jolly on Podcast Radio. And for more big interviews, go to podcastradionetwork.com.